Bob Harrington from Stanford University, and I'm really excited to announce going back to the heart of cardiology, the fourth annual conference. It'll be held this year in Anaheim, California, December 8th through 10th. It's a great opportunity to get a couple of days of prevention through structural heart disease intervention type of education, great opportunity for networking, meeting with friends in beautiful, warm Southern California. To register, go to heartofcardio.com. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hi, cardio nerds. This is Josh Safe, and I'm here with Dr. Agnes Coxo. And we're here to hear about a very exciting and interesting case up in Chicago. I'm here with Drs. Eva Minga, Kifa Hussein, and Kevin Lee, who apparently are going to take us out for coffee on Lake Michigan. Is that right? That's correct. I know I prefer days that are at least in the 50s and 60s, but hey, I know that coffee on the Navy Pier is a special experience, so we really appreciate the invitation. Why don't you guys go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Eva Minga, and I'm a third-year cardiology fellow at North Shore University in Evanston, Illinois, and I have an interest in cardiac imaging and cardio-oncology. I'm Kifa Hussein. I am a second-year cardiology fellow at North Shore in Evanston, Illinois. I am also interested in advanced cardiac imaging and hoping to start doing that from next year. And I'm Kevin Lee, also a second year at North Shore and also sounding like a broken record, but also interested in advanced cardiac imaging and applying for that right now and hopefully starting in a year and a half. It's fantastic that you all are very interested in imaging because it ties very closely to what I do on a day-to-day -day basis as I try and construct things in my mind with what's hooked up to what in different types of cardiac anatomy, different types of surgical corrections. So I'm very appreciative of what you do because it's very important to the patients that I take care of. And so I'm really glad to see that we're a generation of cardiologists that are bringing a number of cross-sectional imagers into the fold. So with that in mind, and knowing that we have a very interesting imaging case to talk about, I was wondering if we could start off and maybe get a sense of what's going on and what's the predicament that brings our patient in today. Absolutely. So we have this young patient, a 25-year-old female patient who comes to our emergency department and she has a known history of some sort of congenital heart disease, though she recently moved from a different country. So we have no records, no known cardiac surgeries in her past that she's aware of. And she's coming in for a week of abdominal pain and weakness. She notes that she's had some nausea, some vomiting, a little bit of tinges of blood but regular bowel movements, and she denies any sick contacts, no recent illnesses. So I'm going to stop you right there just for a second. I don't want to cut things off too soon, but while this sounds like it may be an esoteric or a not-so-commonly encountered case, I want to tell you that in the span of my fellowship, I probably encountered this one or two dozen times, whether that's because of international diplomatic relations or just the fact that congenital heart disease has an increasing prevalence. This is not a infrequently encountered scenario in my world. And the fact that they have unpalliated disease really leaves us with a wide open differential in terms of what the anatomic issue would be. So I'm really excited to hear more. I agree with you, Josh. I have an interest in seeing patients who are high risk for pregnancy from a cardiac standpoint. And we oftentimes get patients who have either had diagnosis with congenital heart disease or had a surgery, but they're not sure what, and we don't have record because they've come from abroad. So these are oftentimes cases that really challenge us most from a medical standpoint. So I'm excited to hear what you guys gathered from her past medical history. Absolutely. Thanks for that, Josh and Agnes. So to continue, her past medical history, she was diagnosed with a quote-unquote congenital heart disease when she was a child in Pakistan. She hasn't followed with doctors since then. She never had any surgery for that and is currently not being treated with any medications for that disease. She does have a seizure disorder that she takes Keppra for every day, but otherwise no other medical history and no other medications. In terms of her surgical history, she's had a cholecystectomy that was, as far as she's aware, uncomplicated. She has no family history of any cardiac disease that she is aware of. And then in terms of her social history, she's had no tobacco use, alcohol use, or drug use. 
And Agnes, you bring up a good point. She has not been pregnant before and has not tried to conceive in the past, and she has no known drug allergies. The hospital gets vitals and does a physical exam, and on that, we get our first sense that something is a little off. So in terms of her vitals, her heart rate is 85, respiratory rate a little high at 22, blood pressure a little elevated at 144 over 110. She is afebrile with a temperature of 37.2 degrees Celsius. And she is found to be satting 75% on room air, which she notes is normal for her and that she has always had pretty low oxygen saturations. In terms of her exam, she is alert and no acute distress. Her skin is warm and dry. Her exam is relatively unremarkable with a normal cardiovascular exam with regular rate, regular rhythm, normal S1 and S2, and no murmurs, rubs, or gallops. In terms of her respiratory exam, her lungs are clear to auscultation bilaterally. In terms of her GI exam, she does have some tenderness noted in the epigastrium and right upper quadrant, but no rebound or guarding is noted. And her neuromusculoskeletal exam are unremarkable. So there are a few things there that I just want to take a second to pause and reflect on. And so when I think about what would have led to a diagnosis of congenital heart disease, not otherwise specified abroad or something that would have been longstanding, one of the major ideas there is hypoxemia. And whether or not this patient was cyanotic at birth or whether or not this person had some type of structural heart disease, maybe there was a murmur that wouldn't go away. And you can think about sort of valvular obstruction or other types of ideas there. But one of the clues that stood out to me was the fact that she had this prior seizure disorder, which we may or may not learn more about as the case progresses. But in my mind, I wonder in patients who are cyanotic, this patient obviously coming in with a saturation of 75 there is potential for neurologic sequelae either due to shunts or they're more vulnerable with regard to infection. And we unfortunately do see a number of patients with cyanotic and general heart disease experience brain abscesses, which can bear different types of neurologic manifestations, seizure disorders, obviously different types of deficits. So those are some of the things that I was grabbing out in my mind as you were reading through the history and I think there are a lot of important clues just to think through when you're first hearing about a patient like this, because you really are going in very, very broad, like we've been saying before. I agree with you, Josh. The other things I would add is I think about acute versus chronic hypoxia. Obviously, this person doesn't sound like they're an extremist, but you can certainly look for physical exam signs of chronic cyanosis, like clubbing in the hands. And then there's also things like differential cyanosis. We think about lesions like PDA. So oftentimes we want to take our pulse socks, not just in the fingertips, but also in the toes. So a little bit of a diversion from adult cardiology, but I often say congenital heart disease doctors are some of the best at physical exam because they are very comprehensive with the physical exam. No, you're absolutely right, Agnes. I think clubbing and evaluation from head to toe, not to make a pun out of it, is extremely important. And then the other thing that jumps out at me is this history of cholecystectomy. I think we as cardiologists see a lot of the time that patients can have right upper quadrant pain in the context of venous congestion. But if somebody has cyanosis, they're likely to have an increased red blood cell mass, which can lead to more cell turnover, and that actually can drive gallstones. And so I don't know if there's any particular history that could be gleaned. I don't know what age at which she had her cholecystectomy or whether or not those stones were even looked at or if there were stones. But nonetheless, just thinking in the back of your mind with a patient with congenital heart disease who's had a cholecystectomy, that's some of the thought process that I go through. I love that, Josh. And I think that's a really nice segue into the labs. Do you guys want to take us through some of the lab work that you found in this patient? Absolutely. Thank you for those great thoughts, Josh and Agnes. Josh brought up a great point in terms of the hemostasis that some of these patients can have. So we did do a CBC. Her white count was normal at nine. Her hemoglobin was elevated at 26.7. And she did have pretty profound thrombocytopenia with a platelet count of 24. In terms of her basic metabolic panel, her electrolytes were relatively normal. Sodium was 135. Potassium was unfortunately hemolyzed on the sample. Chloride of 102 bicarb of 17, and then BUN was 35 and creatinine of 1.7. We also got a liver profile on her given her abdominal discomfort. T-Billy was elevated at 1.7, ST was 135, ALT of 84, Alkfots of 222. Her albumin was low at 2, her total protein also low at 6.2. Because of her known congenital heart disease history, a troponin I high sensitivity was drawn and it was 106 at our institution. Anything over 14 would be abnormal. 
And NT Pro BNP was also drawn, and that was 38,000, which is also remarkably elevated. Wow, Kevin, that was a really overwhelming (laughs) set of abnormal lab. When you get a patient like this and you see so many red in the sea of lab work, sometimes it's hard to put together a framework and a working differential for a patient. I wonder if Josh could help us put some of these lab work into themes about how to think about this patient. Josh, could you help us out? Sure, I'll do my best. You're right, there's a lot of red and there are a lot of impressive numbers, really impressive numbers, actually. So to start with the CBC, which I think has a number of things that jump out in my mind, in some of what we were talking about before. So a patient with cyanotic congenital heart disease, they're obviously going to have increased EPO signaling in the context of their chronic hypoxemia. And that's going to potentially drive the increased red blood cell mass that we saw. So I don't know if I've ever clinically seen a hemoglobin that's close to 27. I've seen some high hemoglobin, so that's a pretty high hemoglobin. And then also she's thrombocytopenic, which may be a consequence of whether she's had an issue with her spleen in the past, Or maybe it represents just the fact that she's producing so many red blood cells, she really doesn't have a lot of bone marrow mass remaining to produce platelets. One thing that I will say is very important, and I believe we're going to talk about this later, is that these patients, though they do have high red blood cell counts, high hemoglobins, there's certain conditions that some of the classic teaching is to do phlebotomy to try and bring that number down quickly. These patients require the red blood cell mass they have for their oxygen carrying capacity. And so phlebotomy really is not the correct answer in the strong majority of cases. And in fact, if somebody was coming in de novo like this, I would probably ask for iron studies because we find that a lot of our patients are iron deficient. And that's a very important piece of their care. With regard to the bilirubin elevation, the transaminitis, I think that potentially goes into the idea of cholestasis. We talked a little bit about that. She also has an elevation in creatinine, which I'm curious to see trend out. And then the high sensitivity troponin, I think we'll talk maybe a little bit about coronary disease in the context of congenital heart disease. I'm not thinking this is an atherosclerotic event, though, just probably demand. And that very elevated NT-proBNP tells me that this is probably something that's been going on for a while and her heart has been under stress for a period of time. And now we may be seeing some manifestation of decompensation, although we're still kind of trying to get to know her. Fantastic, Josh. I love it. So much to dissect in those labs and probably more even in the supportive imaging. Can you take us through the EKG and the chest x-ray gun? Absolutely. So yeah, an EKG was definitely performed on arrival to the emergency department. So I'll just describe it. We see a normal sinus rhythm with what appears to be left axis deviation, left anterior vesicular block. She also has left atrial enlargement. There also appears to be left ventricular hypertrophy. V2 through V6 have pretty generous voltages. So overall, normal sinus, left axis deviation, left anterior vesicular block, LVH, and left atrial enlargement on her EKG. She also gets a chest x-ray, and that shows that she does have this cardiomegaly, though her heart appears almost rounder than you would expect. It looks kind of globular for what it's worth. And she does have some prominence of the pulmonary vasculature with some pulmonary edema and fluid overload. Her cosophrenic ankles are normal, so no large pleural effusions. Great. Excellent. Sounds like you had some information about her presenting symptoms, and now you've got what we usually get as our first batch of lab work and some imaging in the emergency department. What were you guys thinking as far as your differential diagnosis? Yeah, that's a great question, Agnes. I think what Josh was bringing up with this really high hemoglobin, this low oxygen saturation that she says is chronically low, and this quote-unquote congenital heart disease, our first thoughts were the cyanotic congenital heart disease. I don't know if you guys learned it differently, but I always learned them as the five T's of cyanotic congenital heart disease. So I think of tetralogy of the low, truncus arteriosus, total anomalous pulmonary vein return, tricuspid valve abnormalities, and then transpositions of the great arteries. And certainly all of them present differently and would have different physical exam findings. I think that's exactly right. And we depend a lot on physical exam, as we've already discussed. EKG and chest x-ray, there's a lot to be gleaned. And then trying to differentiate between different types of cyanotic congenital heart disease, I really think an echo that takes a very good look at things that we look at, which are the atrial situs, the ventricular looping, and the arrangement of the great vessels are things that we look at very closely to try and determine physiology and where we are. So a great next step would be to go through her echo. 
So given everything that we found, an echo was the next step for this patient. So in the first view, at least for this echo, and if we can play it, you'd see a peristeral long view and you get a good view of the left ventricle, the right ventricle, her aorta and pulmonary artery. So the main thing here, you can see that she does have LVH and she has a thick and left ventricle and right ventricle. And also you can see that there is a VSD or at least an opening that looks like a VSD. In this other view here, we have a short access peristernal view. And basically the main finding is that you can see the aorta and the pulmonary artery in cross section. And that's an abnormal finding. As you know from anatomy, the aorta and the pulmonary artery are 90 degrees to each other. So when one is in short access, the other should be in long access. So when you see both of them in short access, that should raise suspicion for parallel circulation going on. Also important to notice the location. When the aorta is to the right, then should sway you more towards DTGA. And then when it is to the left, it should sway you more towards LTGA. And we'll go over a schematic as well to look at that a little bit further. Here in this echo view, we go back to that parasternal lung, but we are focused more into the aortic valve and the pulmonary valve, and the same thing comes into play. You can see now that they're also longitudinal. You can see two tubular structures that are parallel, raising the suspicion that we have parallel circulation going on, guiding the diagnosis towards the transposition of the great vessels. In this other echo view, we have a short axis of the right ventricle and the left ventricle. And what we notice is right ventricular hypertrophy. And also we have re-imaged the muscular VSD and it's a pretty large VSD. The other echo view is a four-chamber apical view. And here you can see, again, a lot of LVH, a lot of RVH. And here you can also see a little bit better the paramembranous VSD. You can see the gap in the paramembranous VSD. This other echo view, we have another short access demonstrating biventricular flow into the muscular VSD. And lastly, we have a subcostal view showing a pretty plethoric IVC and also showing hepatic vein reversal, demonstrating that her right atrial pressures are high. So overall, a pretty significant echo concerning for congenital heart disease. And all the images will be uploaded into the CardioNerd website for you to check out. Thanks, Eva. A wonderful grand tour of this person's obviously very complex congenital heart disease. If you could name maybe the three or four echo images that clued you into this diagnosis that you said was the transposition of the great artery, could you tell us what you looked for that gave you that diagnosis on echo? Yeah, absolutely. I actually have attached a few slides that also will be uploaded in the CardioNerd website that can help with the schematic and simplify the diagnosis. These are actually slides that I studied for my echo board exam. But when it comes to DTGA, it can come on two forms. So first of all, it can come with an intact septum or it can come with a VSD. And clearly in her case, she has two VSDs, a muscular VSD and a paramembranous VSD. The main clue, as I mentioned, is the orientation of the great vessels. So again, anatomically speaking, the pulmonary artery and the aorta are 90 degrees to each other. So whenever you image them and you have them both in the same view, one should look circular and the other should look tubular because they're, again, 90 degrees. So one should be in a short axis, the other should be in the long axis. When you see both of them in the same axis, parallel to each other, that's when you should start getting worried about transposition of the great vessels. And then your differential gets narrowed. Is it LTGA versus TTGA? And of course, the behavior of the two are completely different. But just speaking only from echo findings, the best shot would be that short axis when you're trying to look at the aorta for the short axis. And if you look at the schematic, you would see that in TTGA, the aorta will be above and the PA below and to the right of the aorta. And then the LTGA, the PA will be below and to the left of the aorta. And of course, with her clinical findings, the cyanosis and everything else, this is much more into DTGA. Excellent. Yeah. I always had trouble remembering L and D and which way, which things were connected. And one of the ways I remember is that the aorta always ends up anterior and it's always the aorta that ends up rolling either left or right. And L, it ends up rolling left and then D, it ends up rolling right. And one of the interesting things about this case, and Josh will have to help us out here, 
with most DTGA patients, especially at this age, we often see them with some sort of surgical baffle or repair, something like a mustard or a thinning or a jetine procedure. Josh, can you help us out? How did this patient make it to this age having had no surgical repair? That's a great question. And there were a lot of great pearls that were just provided. So yes, in detransposition, or what I think of as SDD transposition, which I'll explain in a second, the aortic valve sits anterior. And so there's this classic idea in the context of detransposition, there's, there's no such thing as a split S2 because the aortic valve is louder. Anyway, so how would this patient have survived until now? Number one is a lot of the classic teachings surrounding detransposition that we probably remember from step one and maybe even in more adult general cardiology fellowship is that these are two circulations that exist in parallel and you need a way for flow to exist between the two circulations in order for oxygenated blood to make it out to the systemic circulation so that you can have any meaningful oxygen carrying capacity and deliver blood to your body, which desperately needs it. So this patient obviously had two ventricular septal defects. What happened to this patient and what I think is building up is a lot of the question comes up is, are you getting adequate pulmonary blood flow and are you getting adequate systemic blood flow? So in that situation, you have to think about, okay, so I'm shunting. Am I shunting adequately such that I'm bringing enough blood into the lungs to get oxygenated? And then that blood needs to come back to the pulmonary veins to our right ventricle and then get pumped out to the systemic circulation. So really what happens is that patients just have inadequate balance in some way, shape, or form. They have enough blood that is coming back from the pulmonary veins, going to the right ventricle and out the aorta that's able to sustain their existence. Now, if this person did not have ventricular septal defects or any means of shunting, it just simply would not be compatible with life. And that's why there's the atrial septostomy procedure that exists in the neonatal period, because these patients need a shunt early on pre-surgical correction. We'll talk more about surgical corrections at a later point. So well-balanced circulation is really the means by which these patients are able to survive. Now, that being said, it sounds like she's experienced a good amount of trouble up to this point. She's only 25 years old. What is the difference between the life that she would have lived if she had undergone a repair in the neonatal period and the life that she's lived so far? I think those are substantial differences. We'll probably talk more about surgical corrections and everything along those lines, but the idea, at least early on, is you need adequate oxygenated blood going out to the systemic circulation, and the shunt is the means to accomplish that. Thanks, Josh. That was really great. Why don't we pause here and take a step back and talk a little bit about the transposition of the great arteries from an epidemiologic standpoint and talk a little bit about what we do in a typical patient as far as treatment and surgical correction. Thank you, Agnes. I'm happy to talk about that. So DTGA is actually one of the most common synodic defects, second only to Tetralogy of Fallot. It has a prevalence of 0.2 per thousand live births, and there is a male preponderance. And obviously, because of the inherent need for some kind of a communication, the way Josh described, really the most common coexisting anomaly with DTGA is some kind of shunt, and it usually ends up being VSD, as is the case with our patient. And this occurs in about 50% of patients. It can really involve any part of the septum. In this particular patient, we have two communications in their interventricular septum. And a lot of these patients tend to have coexisting pulmonary stenosis or atresia, overriding or straddling of their atrioventricular valve and or coarctation of the aorta. Another interesting complication that a lot of these patients seem to have is LVOT obstruction and it happens in about one fourth of patients. And it can happen both in those patients that have a VSD and those that don't. For the patients that don't have a VSD, it tends to be more of a dynamic LVOT obstruction where the RV that becomes somewhat the systemic ventricle for these patients undergoes pressure overload and their interventricular septum starts to protrude into the LVOT. And that's where this dynamic obstruction would come from. But in the patients who have a VSD, typically the LVOT obstruction tends to be fixed because there may be an associated component of pulmonary atresia or stenosis with these patients. 
Another interesting complication that these patients have is coronary artery anomalies. And the way we think of where coronaries arise from, it's usually the sinuses of false alpha. So now that we have a switch of our aorta and pulmonary artery, typically these patients have their coronaries arising from the sinuses of Valsalva facing the pulmonary artery. So about two-thirds of these patients actually have their left main arising in the anterior leftward-facing sinus of the pulmonary valve, and the right arises from the posterior and rightward-facing sinus. And these are just important things to take into consideration when we are considering these patients for surgical correction. So just to take us through quickly what the surgical correction options are for these patients, historically, one of the very first described procedures is the Rastelli procedure, which typically entails baffling the LVOT through the VSD with the intention of closing the VSD and directing oxygenated blood from the LV into the aorta. And in addition to that, there's a conduit that's placed from the right ventricle to the pulmonary artery. So this is how the attempt is made to direct oxygenated blood from the LV into the aorta and deoxygenated blood from the RV through that new conduit that's created into the pulmonary artery. Even now, in this day and age, even though the Restelli procedure is thought to be a historical procedure, it is sometimes preferred for patients that have significant LVOT obstruction because it can be more durable for those patients. The only caveat is that you would need a sizable VSD to make this work. And really the complications of this procedure come from the creation and the maneuvering around that VSD. So perioperatively, a lot of these patients are at risk for complete heart block. They need a pacemaker. They have a higher lifetime risk of atrial and ventricular arrhythmias. And the other problem that they have is they need serial conduit replacements because the conduit between the pulmonary artery and the RV does not grow with the size of the child. A different procedure that came about around the same time as the Rastelli were the Senning and Mustard procedures combined. They're called atrial switch procedures. The Senning procedure came a little earlier than the Mustard procedure. Both of them involve creating a two-way baffle in the top part of the heart that's meant to serve as a bridge between the two sides of the heart. And this two-way baffle, what it's supposed to do is direct deoxygenated blood via the mitral valve to the left ventricle and out through the PA, and then oxygenated blood via the tricuspid valve into the RV and out the AO. The only difference between the sending and the mustard procedure is that the sending procedure uses a human tissue to create the baffle and the mustard procedure uses synthetic material. This procedure, however, was fraught with complications. Almost two-thirds of these patients would have rhythm abnormalities, Almost all of these patients late in life would have significant heart failure because, as you can imagine, the RV becomes a systemic ventricle and it's not built to take that amount of pressure overload. So most of these patients would end up in heart failure. And then a lot of these patients would have complications from their baffle. So these two procedures are really no longer performed. And that brings us to the most common procedure that's standard of care at this point in time, which is the arterial switch procedure, the JETEN procedure. And what this involves is transection of both the great arteries and translocation of the vessels to the opposite route. So we are correcting the ventricular arterial discordance that is the problem in DTGA. And as you can imagine, it's very important to delineate coronary anatomy for these patients because the procedure also involves mobilization and reimplantation of the coronary arteries into the neoaortic route made of the pulmonary valves. And the reason this procedure gained favor is because the overall period operative mortality significantly dropped, became less than 1% for patients with just DTGA and is in the range of 3 to 4% when patients have associated other congenital anomalies. Complications to keep in mind with the arterial switch procedure are main and branch pulmonary artery stenosis, which is thought to occur due to scarring at the anastomosis site and inadequate growth of the main pulmonary artery. And this can usually be managed with percutaneous stenting. Coronary artery stenosis and insufficiency is another problem that happens because the procedure obviously involves reimplantation of the coronaries. And it usually happens within the first three months after the procedure. And you can get keyed into the possibility of this if there's unexplained ventricular dysfunction. All of these patients tend to also have a higher lifetime risk of atherosclerosis of their coronaries. And it's important to institute early lipid-lowering therapy for these patients. And lastly, the problems that are less common with this procedure include neoaortic regurgitation and neoaortic root dilation. And 
It's simply because the native pulmonary valve becomes now our neo-aortic valve and it's not truly built to face systemic pressures. So now there's just a higher incidence of insufficiency of that valve. However, in most of the studies that have been done, it's been found that this is usually not clinically significant unless it's associated with the VSD and LVOT obstruction. That's really an overview of the surgical options. Now, our patient, however, is perhaps at the point where this may not be feasible to do because they are already showing signs of significant pulmonary hypertension. And we can come to that in a little bit and how that would be managed. So just to review where we are at with our patient at this point, we have our 25-year-old young woman with DTGA. She has significant hypoxia. She's on 5 liters of O2. Her O2 sats are in the 70s. She has significant erythrocytosis. And on the echo, as Eva very nicely described, we have the evidence of the DTGA anatomy. We can see the large VSD with bidirectional shunting. We see both left ventricular and right ventricular hypertrophy. That's an excellent summary, Kifa, about the epidemiology, the surgical history, and a number of the considerations that we move through when we're dealing with these patients. There are just a few points as we return back to the case that I think are important to bring up. When my patients are hospitalized, a lot of the time they are hypoxemic, and hypoxemia scares a lot of providers in the hospital. And just to keep in mind for our listeners that no matter how much oxygen you give this person, they are never going to achieve normoxemia due to their shunting. And then also the bidirectional shunting, thanks for bringing it up, Kifa, is an important sign to make us consider whether or not we've gotten to a point where her pulmonary vascular resistance has risen to where we're going to have to consider ideas like Eisenmenger syndrome. And she actually may have pulmonary vascular remodeling that has occurred in the context of the chronic shunting. So those are really important considerations as we come back to the case. So thank you very much for that summary. And so Eisenmenger syndrome, it sounds like maybe you guys are going down that way in your clinical reasoning. Is that something that popped up at the top of your mind? Yes, Josh, absolutely. At this point, we were pretty sure that she had Eisenmenger syndrome, unfortunately, given the bidirectional flow, as you mentioned, on her VSD given all the changes that she had in her echo, but also the physical exam was a main finding. What we didn't show in the initial physical exam, and I actually saw this patient in clinic, but it wasn't described, was that she had significant clubbing as well. So all of those are finding of hypoxemia. So she got a diagnosis of Eisenmenger syndrome and is currently followed by our adult congenital clinic. So if that's okay with you, I want to talk a little bit more about Eisenmenger syndrome, the definition, pathophysiology, and complications, and then Kevin will go ahead with talking about some of the treatment. So the definition of Eisenmenger's is development of pulmonary hypertension secondary to the presence of long-standing left to right shunting at the ventricular level. And this was more the classic or old-time definition, but now it pretty much includes any intracardiac or extracardiac shunting that results in pulmonary vascular obstructive disease. What ends up happening is that as the pressures on the right heart starts rising, in that case, for example, as in our patient, you'd see shunting initially from left to right, which was most likely the case for this patient when she was born. You'll see that shunting also now going from right to left. And what happens is that it remodels the pulmonary artery, causing thickening of the pulmonary artery and eventually leading to pulmonary hypertension. Eisenmenger syndrome, even though it does lead to pulmonary hypertension, it's a little bit different from idiopathic pulmonary hypertension. The survival rates tend to be better. For example, it's 77% at three years compared to 35% from idiopathic pulmonary hypertension. A lot of patients can make it up to the third decade of life and some can live beyond the fifth decade of life. But in general, they do have about 20 years reduction in their median survival compared to somebody who doesn't have heart disease. Predictors of death for Eisenmenger syndrome are many, but some include syncope, poor functional class, if there is increased right atrial pressures, severe RB dysfunction, if there is other congenital abnormalities, the more complex the congenital abnormalities, the higher the risk of having more complications. And if you have both right ventricular and left ventricular dysfunction, mortality is pretty high, is about 80% at two years. Some of the complications we already have mentioned with this patient and we had seen secondary erythrocytosis is a main complication that our patient have, and this is due to a chronic hypoxemia that the patient has endured all her life. 
And this leads to increased hemoglobin concentration and then increased viscosity. As you can imagine, the viscosity can be important. It usually doesn't have symptoms unless the hematocrit exceeds 65%, but it can lead to headache, dizziness, lightheadedness, altered mentation, visual disturbances, paresthesias, etc. You mentioned briefly phlebotomy, and we want to re-highlight here that phlebotomy is rarely indicated for this patient because even though they do have a high hemoglobin, a lot of these patients tend to be iron deficient. And by doing phlebotomy, can reduce oxygen delivery and can actually increase the risk of stroke for this patient. So the phlebotomy can only be reserved when the hematocrit is very, very elevated or there is a very severe hyperviscosity syndromes, but it should be done very carefully and with a multidisciplinary discussion between the different teams because it can be very dangerous for this patient. Hyperviscosity can also lead to thrombosis, which can be another cause of complication for these patients. There is bleeding risk due to thrombocytopenia, platelet dysfunction, and lower levels of vitamin K, because as we mentioned, for example, in our patient, her platelets were very low in the 20s, her liver can get affected, so they can get thrombosis, but they can also bleed at the same time, which can be very difficult to manage them. But thankfully, the bleeding usually is mild and self-limiting. Another main concern with any cyanotic heart disease is endocarditis. So endocarditis prophylaxis for unrepaired cyanotic congenital heart disease is really important. In one study, there was a 10-year follow-up among these patients with unrepaired cyanotic congenital heart disease, and endocarditis can occur up to 8% per year. Another interesting, actually, complication is pheochromocytoma and paraganglioma. And these patients are at a higher risk for developing this type of complications compared to other people who don't have congenital heart disease. And the thought process, even though we don't know the cause, but it's probably a combination of hypoxic stress, genetic and developmental factors. Sorry to interrupt. I will tell you that this is probably one of the more interesting associations with congenital heart disease in the context of hypoxemia. There is a lot of very interesting research as to why this occurs. But just being a congenital heart disease doc, dealing with rare things, then also being one of the cardiologists that most often sees VOs in their practice, it's just a very interesting part of my job. Yeah, absolutely. We don't see VO otherwise very much, but this is important to keep in mind for these patients. Right. Summarizing the complications, these patients can absolutely have kidney disease. And it's important to keep in mind that the kidneys are also exposed to cyanosis. And even though the creatinine might look normal, they actually can have a low GFR and their kidneys don't act normally. One important finding is that they can have long-standing proteinuria and hyperuricemia. So some patients are at risk of gout and might need daily allopurinol. And of course, avoiding any non-steroidal or any other agents that can lead to kidney dysfunction is really important. Risk of arrhythmias, as you can imagine, with Eisenmangers, there are an increased risk of arrhythmia given the increase in right atrial pressure and given an increase in the changes that happen to the heart overall. There is not a lot of good options here, and the only one that has been more frequently used is amiodarone. The rest actually can have a risk sometimes of inducing more arrhythmias. Unfortunately, the antiarrhythmic use here is very limited. We did mention iron deficiency briefly, but again, important to keep in mind that even though the hemoglobin is very high, these patients can be iron deficient. And sometimes this is what leads to the hyperviscosity. And as iron deficient red blood cells can become more sticky or they are different in shape and they can lead to hyperviscosity and lead to cerebrovascular events. So you often see these patients also getting iron replenishment, even though they have a very high hemoglobin. Also important to keep in mind that sometimes they can get diagnosed with obstructive airway disease, but most of the time this is more of a mechanical obstruction secondary to the pulmonary hypertension that is truly a lung disease. But just to keep in mind that sometimes they'll have this diagnosis when they come to the more specialized, let's say, clinic that they have this diagnosis of obstructive airway disease. Fluid status is very difficult to balance because, of course, they might require diuretics because of the right-sided heart failure, but also they're preload dependent. So this can be pretty challenging to balance in this patient. All right. So that's all I wanted to say for complications. And I will hand it over to Kevin to talk for treatment. But at this point in time, the patient was admitted. She was started on IV melrinone and rehydrated with IV fluids and had improvement of her symptoms. She was seen by our adult congenital team and was started on sildenafil and salixapac with improvement in her O2 saturation. 
And then eventually her milrinone was able to get discontinued. Yeah, thanks for all that, Eva. And interestingly, she's actually seeing endocrine currently. I know we were talking about pheochromocytoma, but she was found to have bilateral adrenal nodules and she did have elevated metanephrine. And so she's actually seeing endo right now and they're trying to see if she does actually have pheochromocytoma because she certainly could. So going back into treatment options for Eisenmenger syndrome, there is some research into it, but not a whole lot. So basically, the number one thing is that the treatment for Eisenmangers is similar to the treatment for group one ulnarogeral hypertension with some key exceptions. So the first exception is that calcium channel blockers are never the answer for pulmonary hypertension due to congenital heart disease. There are some studies the BREED-5 trial, for instance, that shows that bocentin may help improve six-minute walk distance and may decrease PVR after 16 weeks of treatment and help with symptoms for people who have functional class 3 for Eisenmangers. The effect on mortality was less well-documented. There are some other experiences with other ERAs and other PE5s, such as sildenafil and tadalafil. They show that there's probably some favorable aspect to using these medications in patients with Eisenmenger syndrome. There's just less data to really know what's truly the right answer here. And then some of the newer PAH drugs, such as mesotentin, selexapag, riosiguat, the data are also limited for Eisenmenger patients though they certainly show improvement in patients who have pulmonary arterial hypertension. And so some of them are being used for patients with congenital heart disease, such as our patient who was started on Selexpag. A lot of these treatments, there are a lot of things to balance. For instance, there are benefits and risks to all these medications. There are different formulations of administration. Some of them are IV infusions, such as prostacyclin. Some of them are quite expensive, such as Selexpag can be quite expensive. And so a lot of that has to be balanced with the patient in general. So at least at our center and many other centers, we have a sequential strategy to try to improve symptoms in our patients. So we will start with an oral ERA, such as bocentin, or oral PD-5 inhibitor, such as sildenafil, and then add on therapy depending on if symptoms persist or if the patient's getting worse. If the patient is not getting any better, sometimes we'll do sub-SU or IV therapy. In patients who really are not improving with our medical therapies, sometimes heart-lung or lung transplantation is an option, but can certainly be a very complex surgery and can also be limited by organ availability. The overall goals of therapy are mostly for improvement in symptoms. There are some objective measures that we will measure, such as ProBNP, VO2 index, functional class, six circuit walk distance and invasive hemodynamics such as RA pressures and cardiac index, but a lot of it is based off improvement in symptoms. The use of oxygen in these patients is somewhat controversial. Like Josh was saying, none of these patients will ever reach normoxemia. However, some patients do report benefits from oxygen and may need oxygen just to keep their oxygen saturations at a reasonable level that is sustainable for life. And then lastly, I just wanted to briefly touch on pregnancy. And so a lot of our patients with PAH from congenital heart disease, and especially patients with Eisenmangers, are at least relatively, if not absolutely, contraindicated from having pregnancy. The mortality for women with group 1 pulmonary hypertension that is not from congenital heart disease is somewhere in the 16 to 30% range for maternal mortality. For patients with Eisenmangers, that mortality can increase to somewhere around 20 to 50%. These patients are at high risk for cyanosis, shunting, paradoxical embolism, and really that the stress on the body from pregnancy can oftentimes overwhelm them. And really, a lot of these patients should be discussed about never being pregnant. And if they become pregnant, termination of the pregnancy should be discussed with the patients for their safety as well as the fetal safety. Any woman that becomes pregnant should be managed by a multidisciplinary team with a pulmonary hypertension expert as well as OB experts in maternal and fetal medicine, as well as experts in cardiac disease. Thanks, Kevin. I think that's a great summary of a lot of the therapies. And fortunately, in the context of congenital heart disease, being a rarer entity that's underrepresented in a lot of clinical trials, it's very difficult to generate high quality evidence to drive treatment decisions by. And so there are a lot of institutions that have algorithms such as what you've discussed 
And it's extremely important in the context of pulmonary hypertension with congenital heart disease to work closely with pulmonary hypertension specialists. It's a very important place to have an interface between those two teams. And with regard to pregnancy, I also agree the idea of multidisciplinary care is hugely important. And I think it's a very individual decision whether a patient decides to start a family. And that's something that I try and do in my clinical practice really early on. And I know Agnes also works very closely in this field because these are ideas that are very important to our patients and they all have their own individual life goals and we do our best to try and achieve them safely. But also there are a lot of difficult conversations we have to have. Yeah, Josh, I think we have an excellent Cardio Nerd episode on transitions of care. And one of the really important themes discussed in transitioning pediatric to adult congenital heart disease patients is discussing future pregnancy and if not, then contraception and all of these themes. So thank you so much for discussing that very important topic of pregnancy and just how high risk these patients are, as well as that amazing overview of all the complications and treatment options for patients with Eisenmangers. That was really wonderful, guys. Let's wrap up the case. And I just wanted to ask you guys before we leave, and we'll start with Ava, what makes your heart flutter about cardiology? That's a difficult question. I really loved cardiology as a med student. I've always kind of been a physics person and I've always liked medicine as well. I come from a family of doctors, so it's kind of ingrained in me. So that's when I first discovered it. I did a few rotations, actually, and it combined the best of both worlds for me. So that's number one. And it's just the patient care and continuity of care and how well you get to know patients and be there for all the highs and lows in their life. That's what makes my heart flutter about cardiology. Great. That's amazing. Kifa, how about you? What makes your heart flutter about cardiology? Nice question. For me, cardiology has always been a path to being a better diagnostician, and that's kind of where my heart's always been. And being able to explore cardiac imaging and just having so many options to help diagnose conditions and help get the answer before we can help our patients is probably what drives me most to go to work every day and enjoy what I do. So yeah, the dynamicity of imaging that's out there and what we can do with it and how we can help people. I think that's what makes my heart flutter about cardiology. I love it. Thank you. And last but certainly not least, Kevin, what makes your heart flutter about cardiology? Yeah, great question. I would say my cavotricuspid isthmus, but maybe that's a little too nerdy to say. I would say really the thing is just how <laughs> complex of a structure it is. I mean, we tried to present in this case how one simple kind of wrong turn almost of the heart while it's developing can cause so many downstream effects. I mean, this is such a complex organ that really is integral to all parts of our life. And it has so many different things that you can look into the muscles, the arteries, the electrical system. I mean, there's just so many things that you can learn from it and it's its own beast in a way. And so that's really what drew me in. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're kind of a master nerd like me. There are not many nerds that get so nerdy that they get into embryology. And I always think about how many things have to go right to end up with a two ventricle circulation that isn't complicated. And each heart is individual and what we see in congenital heart disease is the extremes. But I like tricuspid isthmus too, though. I think that's actually going to play real well. Well, anyway, thank you very much to our team in North Shore to bring us this excellent case of detransposition of the great vessels with a VSD presented in their 20s and was well-balanced enough to accomplish that. And for an excellent overview with several pearls that I think are going to be very valuable to our listeners. And with that, I'll say thank you very much for joining us and stay nerdy. Now we have the pleasure to introduce Dr. Michael Earing. Dr. Michael Earing is our new adult congenital heart disease expert. He has done here an excellent job in the Chicago area. He's actually the director for three hospital systems for the adult congenital. He's appointed from University of Chicago, but also works with Advocate Healthcare and also at North Shore. And he heads all the program for those three hospitals. It follows a large patient population. And we have the privilege to rotate with him in clinic and learn from his expertise and knowledge. Good afternoon. It's great to be here and be able to discuss this really interesting case. And this case really is a great example of Eisenmenger syndrome. And this is a young lady with unrepaired D-transposition grade arteries with VSD. And I thought the discussion was excellent today. 
she presented late and really has developed a lot of the late complications. And I think this case, we can walk through a lot of these problems. Eisenmenger is really referred to as the development of pulmonary hypertension, and it's secondary to a long-standing left-right shunt. At the particular level, classically is how it is described, but also could be at any level, the ASD, PDA, and then more complex disease. One of the really important teaching parts is that over time, these patients always get worse. And those patients that have more complex disease always do worse than those that have simple lesions, such as just a VSD. So somebody like this who has D-transposition grade arteries with VSD, it's a more complicated lesion. So this patient is going to have a worse outcome than those that have just a simple VSD. The reason why this is important is when you look at the actual survival in patients with Eisenmenger syndrome, it has changed over the years. In the past, most patients would be alive in the third decade. And so one of the biggest, more recent studies showed that the average age of death was 33 years for a patient with both a VSD or an aeropulmonary limbo versus those with 36 years with an ASD. And that's a 20-year difference in survival when you look at the general population in the past. But more recent studies in the last two decades with the onset of medical therapy and better management, you really have seen an improvement in survival. So now 75% of patients with Eisenmenger syndrome will be alive at age 30. 70% at age 40, and then 55% of people by age 50 are still alive. So you have a really complicated disease that's hard and something that not everybody sees, but it's really important that their survival is different from those with primary pulmonary hypertension, where the survival, even in the best situations, is that three to four year mark after you're diagnosed with primary pulmonary hypertension. So this is really, really important. Also, and in pulmonary hypertension, it's often really important that we look at predictors for outcomes. And so strong predictors for death in the setting eyes and maker include CKB unexplained age of presentation. Are you having debilitating exercise tolerance? So the worst functional class that of worse you're going to do. If you're having abnormal arrhythmias, if you have right atrial pressures, very high, typically in the 10 to 15 range. And the lower your oxygen saturation as a baseline, the worse it comes. In general, if you're less than 85% at baseline, at rest, that's a bad marker. Renal insufficiency is a bad thing in all heart disease, but it's even worse in Eisenmenger syndrome. So if you have bad renal function, that carries a risk factor. And one of the most important risk factors is dysfunction of the ventricle. Patients with Eisenmenger syndrome don't have bad function, typically have really small contractile hypertrophy ventricles. And if you have abnormal RV and LV function, that is the number one predictor of mortality. So if I have somebody with bad function, which this young lady did when she presented, that is a really bad red flag and that carries high mortality risk. It's something you have to take really in serious. These patients have a lot of other problems as well, and it's related to their adoptive mechanisms. So if you have chronic hypoxemia, these patients develop secondary erythrocytosis. This is a really important concept because their hemoglobin hematocrit should be high. It's related to the ability to increase oxygen carrying capacity. And so hematocrit in the 20s and hematocrit in the 70s are really what they should have. The number one driver outcomes is not the hemoglobin hematocrit numbers. It's actually iron deficiency. Iron deficient cells are less able to carry oxygen. They're at increased risk for thrombosis. Because they're not deformable. And so the risk of clotting and actually stroke is highest in those patients that actually are iron deficient. Another teaching point is that the MCV does correlate with iron deficiency in the sitting Eisenmenger syndrome. And that's because the RDW of the actual red blood cells, there's a larger differential size in red blood cells for patients with Eisenmenger syndrome. So a really important teaching point. So you got to think iron deficiency and that's a driver. Patients that have iron deficiency and are dry, so decreased fluid intake, or they're getting diuretics, these patients are a really high setup for stroke. And so diuretics need to be used really cautiously. And some patients do need it, but it's not something that traditional. In addition to having the secondary risk of cytosis and having increased risk for cerebrovascular events because of that, with the iron deficiency, they also have increased risk for bleeding. These patients all have low levels of platelets. And the reason is, is they're constantly increasing their platelet consumption because they've increased vascular strain on the walls and they're constantly making an endothelial factor that's activating their platelets. So platelets of 80 to 120 are really common, but it's important to remember this because if you put somebody on an aspirin or something and they already have low platelets, there's an increased risk. 
The other thing that people don't demonstrate is because they have hemoglobin and hematocrit so high, there's more red blood cells than actually clotting factors. And so their clotting factors per the number of red blood cells is much lower. So they actually have increased bleeding tendency just because of the bleedings being low and also the number of clotting factors that they have are much lower. So not only the risk for stroke, the risk of bleeding is real. And so these are really, really important aspects that you have to keep in mind. In regards to that risk of stroke, it's not just risk of stroke. You can also have pulmonary hemorrhage, but you also can have pulmonary emboli. We traditionally don't put isomaker patients on anticoagulation. And the reason is, is that there really is no data saying, unlike with primary pulmonary hypertension, that anticoagulation improves survival. And in fact, in some patients, you'll see it makes it much worse because the number one cause of death in our isomangers patients is still heart failure, sudden cardiac death from arrhythmias and pulmonary hemorrhage. And pulmonary hemorrhage occurs probably somewhere between 20 to 90% of patients during their lifetime at least once. Most of the time it's self-resolving, but not always. And so it's another one that really cumin is not always the right answer or an anticoagulation, even though you have right to left shunting at baseline. The only study ever that's actually looked at this was from Mexico City. And it's a very high altitude, so they're very high risk for Eisenmangers. And they looked at patients, a group treated all their patients with cumin in a group that did not. And it wasn't randomized, it was just preferential because of the treatments that the different groups believed in. The patients on Coumadin had much higher risk of bleeding than those that did not, and the mortality was higher than those that were on Coumadin versus not. We're never going to have a randomized trial, but that's the closest. Other things is these patients are at increased risk for endocarditis because they have right-to-left shunting, they don't have lung that filters out a lot of these things. They also have bacteria that typically are not normal. They often have anaerobes because they're cyanotic and they're colonized with different bacteria than you normally will see. So you always have to have a really, really important thought process when you have somebody with a fever. They're high risk of endocarditis. These patients also have reduced GFR. Patients that are cyanotic, they often have proteinuria and their GFR is very low. So you have to be really careful with cyanotic kidneys because you can put them in renal failure really easy. They also have higher levels of uric acid because the red blood cell turnover. So uric acid levels being super high can also be a marker of your GFR being low. And so uric acid GFRs are something you have to follow. My rule is, is if you're going to cath them, you have to make sure that you have them well hydrated. They're not the last case of the day. They're high risk for arrhythmias while their ventricles are cyanotic. So how's cyanotic myocardium act and behave? Normal. And so there are increased risks for atrial and ventricular arrhythmias. But you can't just put a pacemaker in them. You can't just do an AICD because they have obligate right to left shunting. So it's a really complicated situation. All their antiarrhythmics have side effects. And so these are all things you have to kind of weigh. Other things, these patients have abnormal PFTs. They often have a chronic cough. If you have a giant massive pulmonary artery that's under high pressure, it can actually compress the airways right underneath the PA. So cough is really common. When the PAs are so massive and dilated, and they also can stretch the current laryngeal nerve. And so I've had many patients present with call. Lastly is that lobotomy is not something that traditionally we do in these patients. In the olden days, we did. But lobotomy actually has not shown the improved survival of her symptoms. In fact, if you look at certain symptoms that lobotomy was done for headaches and different things, those are the exact same symptoms that you have with iron deficiency. So in fact, if you improve the iron, many of the symptoms will get better. And what happens is when you do phlebotomy, you're actually lowering the iron levels because you're removing red cells. And so phlebotomy is something we rarely do in any situation for this because there's no data. The last thing that is really important here is, is that there is an increased risk for pheochromocytomas in patients with Eisenmenger and chronic cyanosis. We were able to publish this a while back in 16. We looked in a series of pheochromocytomas in patients with Eisenmenger syndrome. The general, they are typically single tumors, but some people could have them all over the place. Remember, fields are not just in adrenal glands. They're anywhere where you have sympathomatic cells, so cells that produce adrenaline. So they can be up in the carotid bodies. They can be all on your spine. So you can have these, and so you need to image that. We typically screen our patients with metanephrines. If they have those and they're elevated, we look. And so these are things that produce outcomes. This young lady has evidence of probably a field chromocytoma. And in some cases, we have successfully surgically removed them. But you really, really have to plan this out well, and you really need to make sure you're doing it. Lastly, is I think medical therapy is really important in patients with Eisenmenger syndrome. In the olden days, we didn't have meds. Now we have found that this is an ongoing process, so patients with Eisenmenger syndrome always get worse over time. 
in medications such as endothelial antagonists, as well as pulmonary vasodilators of other classes, have shown to be helpful. The first study was the BREATHE 5 trial looking at sensitive Other newer generations have actually shown benefit. And so at this point, there is no reason not to have a patient on pulmonary vasodilator therapy in the setting eyes of Mangers. The in vogue thing for all pulmonary hypertension is to use multiple meds. Typically, we start one, though, because they're so brittle. They have so many side effects. We're not as aggressive with some of the other ones of starting multiple therapies at once. We do it pretty quickly, though. But we really, because of all their other complicated problems that go along with Eisenmenger syndrome, we're careful. I think this is a great case. I think you guys did a great job with explaining this. Hopefully, this makes sense. But I really hope everybody learns from this. Thank you for allowing me to be part of this. Thanks for tuning in to another CardioNerds episode. The audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Akiva Rosenstein. I'm an intern in the CardioNerds Academy House Thomas and resident at Cleveland Clinic. Check out the episode page for show notes and references. If you found this episode or the show informative, please consider subscribing to CardioNerds on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. It really helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. All CardioNerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our upcoming episodes. And now, it's time to make like an S2 and split. Boop. Boop.